0: Verse number two, and we'll see how far into it we can get, okay? It says, And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair. And they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be in hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bear children to them. The same became mighty men, which were men of old, men of renown. I want to go ahead and begin this week as we did last week as well and understand this. As we come into verse number two tonight, we're going to see two different views about uh, some particular things. First of all, who are the sons of God? Who are the giants? What are the giants? Where'd they come from? how did they get here? Why are they here? The whole thing. Um, what is this great sin that's taking place in verses one through four that's going to lead to verse number five, where God saw that wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then that he's going to send forth uh, this deluge to, to literally rid the earth of its sinfulness and to protect those who by faith enter into the ark, which is a, a picture or a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want us to understand that as we come into this, we're going to see some different views of this and you can hold to one view or the other and still go to heaven. All right. So go ahead and that's okay. You, you can hold to a different view uh, than I hold to, and, and we'll even get into that tonight. Um, I'm going to present sort of both, and they're sort of a two views, part A and B, if you will, but they kind of go together. But nevertheless, you can even disagree with me tonight, and I'm not going to be mad at you, and I hope you don't be mad with me. What I want us to do tonight is to look at the Bible, to look at the, the words themselves, to look a little bit deeper than the surface, and to see what this means, because nevertheless, regardless of what view you take, here's what we're going to find out. Sin is the cause. Sin became the consequence. These were becoming reprobate in their minds and in their lives. God was now giving over this sinful world over to their sin. And in so doing, He was going to offer them a chance by grace uh, to repent as one man, Noah, who would preach righteousness for all who could come in unto the ark. However, there would only be a few souls who would enter in. What we're going to find is that God can only tolerate and will only tolerate sin but for so long. We as well in this passage are reminded of the promise that sin will only last for so long that God will one day make all things new, a new heavens and a new earth where there will be no more curse, where there will be uh, no more sin or rebellion against Him. And what we find tonight is that there are some things that God takes incredibly serious, that God takes sin far more serious than you and I ever do and possibly ever could. But tonight, let's look here. Verse number one, it begins, and it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them. We talked last week that there's this explosion of the population. More than likely at this point, they are more than likely in the billions. Uh, There is a a, a ton of people. They are beginning to multiply. And as they're multiplying, what else is multiplying? Sin. Specifically, what we're going to see in this passage and into this chapter is that there are two major sins that are taking place. There is an incredible wave of sexual perversion and immorality, and as well, an incredible amount of violence. Now, the two are also tied together, but we have to understand this. Where we find immorality, below that surface, we're going to find idolatry, right? Immorality is the tip of the iceberg, right? It's just, it's just this this much, All below that is the idolatry that's there of man's sinful heart that wants to be his own God, that wants to um, do his own thing and and hold to his own law or lack thereof. It is ultimately in man's sinfulness and a sinful nature to want to rebel against God, to go against what God says, to go against God's order and his natural order of doing things. And that's what we're going to find here tonight. Now, verse number two, and here's where we're going to get into this Stuff tonight. Now, verse number two says that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair and they took them wives of all which they chose. And let's start at 30,000 foot here. We can break this down fairly simply. The sons of God looked at the daughters of men and said, they look good. I want to marry them. I'm going to take them as my wife. And they took wives which they chose. That's the verse. Pretty simple, but this leaves us with understanding we could just go and keep that meaning and go, let's keep on going, but there's some depth here that we need to look at because when we look at the sons of God, we got to go, who are the sons of God and who are the daughters of men? Why aren't they both called the sons and daughters of God? Why aren't they both called sons and daughters of men? So the first thing that we're going to look at tonight and really in verse number two, tonight's focus is going to be looking at the sons of God. Now, there's two major theories or, or interpretations of the sons of God, and we're going to look at the first one tonight just to begin, and we'll see if we get into the second one, all right? The first view of this, you're going to find this is the godly and ungodly lineage. This is a, a sort of a, an easier view to, to take in the sense that it's easier to swallow, if that makes sense. Now, here's, here's what we're looking at. The sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives which they chose. Here's what we're finding. As Guzik writes, many have believed the sons of God were those from the line of Seth. Let's pause there. The line of Seth, what was the line of Seth like? If we remember, we were given the line of Seth in chapter five. We've got one guy in there who walked with God and was not for God took him. He did not die. He didn't follow the pattern of everybody else around him. His sons and his grandsons and his father and his grandfathers, right? He walked with the Lord in close fellowship and relationship by faith and was raptured by the Lord himself as a testimony and a picture of what what the Lord is going to do with his church. But we also find this, that throughout that chapter, it is leading to a godly man named Noah. And Noah's very name was this idea that peace was going to come. They say, well, during Noah's day, that was when the flood came. Yes, but what came right after? this idea or picture of a new heaven, a new earth, and and things were sort of clean slate, if you will, right? And now with this, we also find that God's grace was there and was upon generation to generation, but we have to remember this as well. These men, though they trusted the Lord and walked by faith, were not sinless. Now you find in the hall of faith there in, in Hebrews chapter 11, find one of those people mentioned that was sinless. You won't find any of them. As a matter of fact, you find all of them that had sin, and even some of them whose sin caused uh, terrible consequences for generations, even. Now as we look here, many have believed the sons of God were those from the line of Seth, and the daughters of men were for them line of Cain. Now let's pause there again in that quote. What was the line of Cain like? Well, just the opposite. They were unfaithful. The line of Cain is seen in Genesis chapter four. It ends up with a guy who is wicked, perverted in his ideas and his ideology with Lamech in Genesis 4 where he's taken multiple wives, he even uh, murders someone, and he says, well if Cain is avenged sevenfold, then I'm going to be avenged seventyfold, right? Uh, Seventy and sevenfold. So this sort of idea of idolatry and pride is rampant through that generation, through that lineage. And as well, what we're going to see here in just a moment is that throughout the Bible, we find this sort of back and forth, don't we, right? We find that Jesus is the light, and he came into the darkness, and the darkness comprehended him not. We find that you and I are now called the light of the world, and that the world abides in darkness. So that there's this darkness and this light. There's those of us who are gathered here tonight who are saved, who are a part of what we might call the righteous lineage or the the seed of faith, those who are trusting in the Lord, but then there are those who are in the opposite, which were those who do not believe, who are unfaithful, who are unregenerate, unbelievers, if you will, lost and undone. So we find throughout the Bible that there is this sort of flow of these two different uh, generations or two different lineages of godly and ungodly. Now, as Guzik continues to write, he says, and this describes an inner marriage between the godly and the ungodly, something God specifically prohibits. And he gives a, a few verses. We'll get into that in just a moment with a couple of those verses. Now, chapter 4 and 5 do clearly show that there is a distinct heritage between the unfaithful and faithful seed. We've got to remember this, though, that these two chapters, 4 and 5, are not happening uh, 300 years before this one. Rather, they're happening just like this. They're going parallel with one another. We often think that one's happening and then years later, chapter 5 happens. But the idea is is that they're going along this way. So it's sort of, here we've got uh, Adam and Eve and then they have uh, Cain and Abel. Well, Cain kills Abel. And then we've got Cain's seed, chapter 4. But then they have a third son, Seth. And he has a righteous lineage that goes down and it follows all the way down. This one leads to Noah, this one... This one leads to some wicked, wicked men. Now with this, as Scroggy writes, Cain's posterity had no true principles or beliefs to abandon, but Seth's posterity had, and it was they who apostatized. So when you approach verse number two, there are those who would hold to this view that would say that verse number two, the sons of God, the daughters of men, are that the sin that causes all these issues is that you have those who were believers intermarrying with those who were non-believers. Now, let me ask you, is it a good idea for a believer to marry a non-believer? No, it's not. It, it, we we. When I was a youth pastor, I used to talk all the time to kids because they always talk about dating because they're 13 to 17 and their hormones are, right? Um, and so they're they're thinking about dating, they're thinking about life, they're still at that spot where they want to grow up and be a fireman, they want to be an astronaut, and then they're also thinking about college, and, and their minds are all over the place. And we used to preach all the time, do not missionary date. They would talk about, you know, there's this really cute guy at school, there's a really cute girl at school. Well, are they a Christian? Well, you know, not, well, not, not exactly. Uh, but, but, you know, maybe if they date me, they'll just suddenly want to be a Christian. I'm going, you don't even read your Bible. <laughs> you think that's going to work? And we'd have to talk and go. Look, we—you cannot. Missionary dating is dangerous. And we found there were many who would, you know, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna date them and see, see what happens. And what would happen is this, this young teen would get further and further and further away from the Lord and closer and closer and closer to the things of the world. Now, with this, we do see in Second Corinthians six fourteen about being unequally yoked. Can can lightness dwell with darkness? No, it can't. It's, it's, it's beyond that of oil and, and water, right? Oil and water might, might, you know, sort of have that dividing line, but light and darkness cannot abide in the same place. It does not work at all. Where you have light, that means you have the absence of, of darkness, right? Where you have darkness, it means you have the absence of light. Now, as we look here as well, I want us to turn over just a few pages to Deuteronomy chapter number 7. Deuteronomy chapter number seven. Now, Deuteronomy is a great book if you especially want to learn what God did during the Exodus, God's law, and the specificness of it. Because Deuteronomy is essentially Moses' last sermons. He is re-giving, and the idea of Deuteronomy itself, the very words, is a re-giving of the law. And so Moses is preaching his final sermons to remind the children of Israel This is who you are. This is who God is. This is what God has done for you. This is where God has brought you from. And this is what God expects. And this is the promise God has made to you. And these are as well the promises that you've made back to God. So hold true because I'm leaving and you're going to go into the promised land and I'm not. And so you've got to be ready to follow and obey the Lord and his word. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 7, it begins here. And this idea in chapter 7 is sort of this remembering that God is going to give them ultimate victory and deliverance. So we praise the Lord for that, but he begins verses 1 through 6 is what we'll look at, Deuteronomy 7. When the Lord thy God shall bring thee into the land, whither thou goest to possess it, and hath cast out many nations before thee, the Hittites, and the Girgashites, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, uh, and the uh, Parasites and the, excuse me, yeah, and the Parasites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than thou. Now Let's pause there for a moment. What was the bigger nation, Israel or these nations, those other nations? But they had the Lord. God said He would deliver them. God said the land was theirs. Therefore, the victory was theirs. But what caused them? What caused them to wander in the wilderness? What caused them to not see victory when they should have seen it? Literally, they should have left Egypt and two weeks later been in the promised land. And instead, they ended up circling around for 40 years in judgment because of unbelief. So what we find is that even God's people, even like Seth's line uh, and Israel themselves can be unfaithful at times. But God still says, I'm going to deliver. In verse number two, he says, and when the Lord thy God, and I love that phrase, how the Lord puts this through Moses to the people. The Lord, thy God. It is God's person that he is the Lord. He is a sovereign ruler of all things. He is the covenant maker, the covenant keeper, and as well, thy God. He is not just his person or his position of authority and power, but he is personal to his people. He says he shall deliver them before thee. That's his promise, his provision. He says thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them. Thou shalt make no covenant with them nor show mercy unto them. that's pretty severe, isn't it? Then verse 3, he says, Neither shalt thou make marriages with them. Thy daughter and thou shalt uh, not give unto unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. Let's pause there for a moment. Who made marriage? God did. Who made man and woman? God did. Who made the structure and the order of the home? God did. Who separated his people from the world? God did. Who told them how to live? God did. Who gave them these instructions? God did. So what we find is that what's going to happen is that they are going to start intermarrying. And he even tells them, if you do this, what's going to happen? Verse number four, he says, For they will turn away thy son from following me, that they may serve other gods. If you read the Old Testament, does that happen? Yeah. Time and time again. He says, uh, so will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy thee suddenly? But thus shall ye deal with them: ye shall destroy their altars, break down their images, and cut down their groves, and burn their graven images with fire. Now pause there for a moment. Every time you find a good king in Israel, what do they do? They cut down the altars, they break down the images, they cut down their groves, and they burn the image, the graven images with fire. That's how you know that Israel was, just, was or Judah was having rev- times of revival. Anytime that there's revival, there's going to be repentance, there's going to be a destruction of idolatry. Notice that God doesn't say in this that they're going to clean up their act. He says they're going to get to the root of the problem because the root of immorality is idolatry. That means this, in Genesis chapter 6, verse 2, down through 4, the root of the sexual sins that were taking place were not sexual sins in nature, but it was the idolatry of the heart that led to those sins. Regardless of view, whichever one you want to take. Now, in this view, he continues. We talked about this idea of not yoking up with them. He says, for thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. So here we find that God promises that he is building and making and creating a people for himself. They will be holy and Live for Him and live before Him and live with Him, but they must obey Him. And what they would do, Israel, is that they would intermarry. And God had forbidden that later on down the line. This is quite a few years before that happens. Now this is a good close to 1,500 years beforehand, right? Now with this, we look we see. In verse number 2 of Genesis 6, "...that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose." Now if you hold that this holds to the godly and ungodly lineage, then this would be a terrible sin. God is later going to say, don't do this. You believe, you call upon the name of the Lord as Genesis chapter 4 verse 6 says, excuse me, Genesis chapter 4 verse 26 says, and to Seth, to him also were born a son and he called his name Enos, then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. We find that there are those who are now beginning to worship God in spirit and in truth, to trust in God's promise and his provision. They are saved, not by works of their own, but by trusting in the Lord and his promise. What is his promise? His promise goes back to Genesis 3.15, that there will be one, the seed of the woman, who will crush the head of the serpent. Now, as we move forward in this, the seed is the promise and provision of God. Therefore, a mixing of the seed here is corrupting the lineage of faith, is the idea. So this view would look and say, well, if they are intermarrying faithful and unfaithful together, that's going to mix all this stuff up. This just isn't going to work. This isn't going to bring forth a Messiah as was supposed to be. Now, as we get in here, there are a few things to, to sort of look at with this view. As McDonald writes here, he poses a few, I think, needed questions when you look at this view. It's this. that He says there's several problems with the view He's not ruling it all together, and I I certainly don't either. If you hold to that tonight, and you're trusting in Jesus, I can't wait to be in heaven with you, and that's perfectly fine for you to hold to that, okay? Now, here's what he says. Why were all the Sethite men godly, but all the women of Cain's lineage ungodly? Also, there's no indication that Seth's line stayed godly. We talked about that. Even they have sin in their life, as did every other. He says, if they did, why should they be destroyed? And also, why should such a union between godly men and ungodly women produce giants? So clearly something, if this is the case, if this view is to be held, then there still has to be some sort of genetic code that gets broken that creates giants and these mighty men who would be ravaging the world and would be violent, uh, as we're going to see in verse 4. And we're going to see that as Genesis 6 progresses. So it does pose a few questions. Uh, Kidner writes the sons of God are identified by some interpreters as the sons of Seth over against those of Cain, By others, including early Jewish writers, they are taken to mean angels. If the second view uh, uh, defies the normalities of experience, the first defies those of language and our task is to find the author's meaning. I pause there for a moment. What Kidner is getting at is saying, this is a difficult one. He's going, this verse is tough and that's okay. Sometimes it's perfectly fine to go, I'm not sure. There are some hills worth dying on. And I can tell you this, Genesis 6 is not a hill worth dying on other than this. Mankind sinned, God must judge, but God graciously and mercifully gave them an opportunity to repent and believe. That's truly the story uh, and the account of all of Scripture in the first place. But beyond that, whether you hold the view one or what we're getting to here in a little bit, view two, Nevertheless, we find that there is a grave sexual issue of sinfulness and idolatry taking place that God can no longer tolerate. Because what it is doing is it is perverting God's order, God's law, the nature of what man is supposed to live like, and as well, it is going against the seed that is to come that will redeem mankind. Kidder continues and he says, For while the Old Testament can declare God's people to be his sons, the normal meaning of the actual term sons of God is angels. And we'll look at that in a moment. And nothing has prepared the reader to assume that men uh, now means Canaanites only or Canaanites only. Now, some strengths with this view, though, is that the themes of lineage, marriage, separation, etc., are going to continue throughout the scriptures. Even throughout the next uh, few chap- uh, few, cha- uh, few books, including Genesis, we're going to find this. We're going to certainly, as we looked at already in Deuteronomy, and so there are some strength and some weaknesses. Both views have some strengths and some weaknesses. Nevertheless, tonight what we want to do is now start to get into view number two. So what we've got here is we've got view one that looks at verse two and says, there were godly men marrying ungodly women. And what happened through that is it produced an ungodly line, an ungodly lineage. And specifically, as we're going to see in this, in this uh, passage, even perhaps giants that are roaming and these mighty men of, of violence and wickedness. And so nevertheless, if view one is correct, it's not good, and it's bad enough for God to say enough, right? Now let's get into verse number two. We're going to find the same thing, but even to perhaps even a, a different level, all right? Y'all still with me? All right, okay, good. I, I want to make sure of that. Now view number two is one um, that is a little bit more difficult. Um, to, to sort of swallow. It's a little bit bigger of a pill, if you will, all right? View number two is this, uh, that here the sons of God means angels. Now, we're not talking about good angels. We're talking about fallen angels. We're talking about the idea of fallen angels and the demonic world is one and the same. So you and I might hear of the word demons, but as also we have to understand that before they were demons or demonic horde, if you will, what were they? They were Angels, fallen though, now. There was a point in time where all the angels in eternity passed uh, when the Lord had created them. And, and as we talked about in Genesis chapter 1, we're not sure of the exact date or day that He does create them. Nevertheless, He created them at some point in time. And we do know this, we're going to look at this verse here in a little bit in Job, that the, that the sons of God are there singing His praises at the dawn of creation. It is assumed that this is before the fall takes place, the fall of these angels angelic beings nevertheless view two is this that demons and then here's sort of view two part b or demon possessed men cohabiting with women in an unholy and unnatural union now either sin either view is disgusting and vile but to think of this all right and we're going to get into this and i want to answer some questions as we get through this as we work our way through so so we're going to take our time But to think, one, to be godly and faithful and to marry someone who is ungodly, unfaithful, and produce a wicked generation, that's an abominable sin, isn't it? Absolutely. But to think to be a child of the Lord or to even just be a regular human being who is a non-believer and to desire to have relations with something that is extra-worldly something that is demonic in nature, that is an incredibly perverse sin. Now, before we get any further tonight, I want us to understand this, that the occult world, the occultic things in nature, and to point out some of those occultic things that are in the world around us, right? They're local, by the way, right? We've got a witch shop down in Galax, Main Street, selling gemstones and uh, all sorts of things, right? You can go into a Barnes and & Noble and you know what you're going to find? You're going to find the, the Christian section, alleged, right? It's pretty rough. i got about half a dozen authors in that whole section that I'm like, okay, I would read those and the rest. Right? But next to it, you know what's there? Almost every Barnes & Noble? It's the religious or philosophy section. And even in that, what you're going to find is a whole wall, and I kid you not, a wall that's longer than this. Longer than six foot, nothing but spell books, witch books, uh, things about uh, uh, gemstones and and astrology, not astronomy, but astrology and all of these things. These are pagan worldviews. These are things that are trying to do physically what the only the uh, immaterial can do. This is trying to bring the invisible and the visible together. Only Christ could do that. Only Jesus could take the invisible and make it visible because Jesus himself is the image of the invisible God. So what the occult world does is it takes what God says and what God does and mimics it or mocks it, right? Now, as we look in this, first of all, let's look here at the word itself, sons of God here. It is the Hebrew, ben Elohim. This is Elohim, God, as we saw in the very beginning, in the beginning, God created Elohim. This is the one who is the ruler, the mighty. It is also an allusion to the Trinity. With this as well, this Ben, this is the sons of. They belong to him. Now, it is only used five times in the Old Testament. Now, in its five times, we have it in Genesis chapter 6, verse 2, verse 4. It is seen. They were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that when the sons of God, as we see in verse number 2. But now hold your place there and turn with me to Job. That's where else we're going to find it. Job chapter 1. Page 489 of my Bible. I don't know what it is in yours, but <laughs> where it's at in mine? Job chapter 1, verse number here now verses 1 through 5 of Job sort of set up his life Job's a rich man a wealthy man he's got kids he's got uh, a world of things around him he is, he's well off but he's also one that feared God and he was upright perfect in his day right is the idea in verse number one now we get to verse six it says now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan came also among them. Who's that? These were demonic beings, weren't they? Now, we think that the devil owns hell, and we think that the devil owns his angels, don't we? But they give account to God. Now, we think about this. We think that certainly, as the Bible tells us, that the devil is the prince and power of the air. But he only has authority or ability to do What he does only because of the Lord's allowance. And the Lord will allow only for so long. This is why Satan himself will be crushed and cast away into a lake of fire. Satan is not going to be the one who's doing any tormenting in hell. In fact, one day he's going to be the one that's tormented. Now... As we look here, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan was among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. Why? Because that's what the devil and his minions do. They go to seek who they may devour. They go to seek who they may pervert, who they may trick, who they may bring fear upon, and all of these things. Now, Job chapter 2, verse number 1. After this, at the chapter one, what happens is, the Lord says, "Have you considered Job?" And Satan goes, "Well, if I can do this, he will deny you." And, Job, and God says, "Go ahead, see what you got." Job doesn't deny. Job loses everything he's got in chapter one, and he says, "And Job, sin not, nor charge God foolishly." In Job one twenty two. Verse number 1 of chapter 2, it says, Again there was a day, so there's some time lapse here, when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. That same word, sons of God. And that's clearly not men, is it? Men don't enter into the presence of God with Satan. It doesn't happen. Then there's another spot as well. In chapter 38 of Job, Verse number seven. Now there is only one other spot that has the word son of God in the Old Testament. But it's where Nebuchadnezzar looks into the fiery furnace and says, I see another, I see a fourth one, and it looks like the son of God. Now as we look here, in verse chapter 38 of Job, verse number seven, it says, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Now let me back up here to help out a little bit. Let me go back to verse number one of chapter 38, just to help out with some context. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darketh, or darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I would demand of thee and answer thou me. Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare, if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, or who shut up the sea when doors, uh, uh, with doors when it break forth uh, as if it had issues uh, issued out of the womb? When I made the cloud, the garment thereof, and the thick darkness, uh, a swaddling band for it and break it up. But you see all these, God is going, where were you? But he says that there were the morning stars and the sons of God were there. And they shouted for joy at, at the dawn of creation in this passage. So what do we find about the sons of God? Just the word itself you trace in the Old Testament? These aren't people. These are angelic beings, and even what we find there in Genesis, it seems, if it lines up exactly like Job, these are demonic beings. Now, this certainly throws a monkey wrench into the system, don't it? Because you and I, we go, hold on, that's bad, first of all, if that's true. And secondly, how does this come to be? How can such take place? Now, Phillips writes here, In the Old Testament, a kindred expression is used, sons of Jehovah. And that would have been an ideal expression to use in Genesis 6, had it been the intention in that passage simply to differentiate between Cain's descendants and Seth's. In fact, it would have been particularly appropriate expression because Genesis 4.26 records that since the days of Enos, men began to call upon the name of Jehovah. That's the name of the Lord. Instead of using the expression "sons of Jehovah," however, the text uses an expression elsewhere reserved in the Old Testament as descriptive of supernatural beings. Now, I've never seen an angel as described in the Bible, to my knowledge. The way that they are invisible to us. Now, here's what you and I often misunderstand spiritually. How many of you know that there is spiritual warfare taking place? Right? We all say that, don't we? Absolutely. Because we know. Why do we know that? The Bible says so. The Bible gives us a whole chapter there in Ephesians that tell us to put on the armor of God to uh, defend ourselves against the fiery darts of the wicked one and uh, of the devil who's always against, uh, against us, who has this whole horde of minions who's always there. But we don't see that, do we? Not physically. Nevertheless, is it happening all around us? Absolutely. One could even argue that it's even happening tonight. When Jesus gives the parable of what's often called the parable of the sower, I, I prefer to refer to it as the parable of, this, of the soil because it's different kinds of soil. What we find is that there's some that get plucked up as soon as the seed hits the ground. Others that uh, the, the, it starts to grow a little bit and then fizzles out, right? Who do you think's doing the plucking up? Now, Satan is not omnipresent like the Lord. He's not everywhere at once. But he's got a whole horde of minions who are. How many angels are there? We've talked about this a little bit, huh? For you and I, it's infinite. It may as well be. The Bible speaks of it in Revelation that is the idea of thousands of myriads times thousands. It is this idea of, for us, humanly, that we can't fathom the number that there are. And if that's the case, and he only has a third of them, that's still more than I can count. It's at least certainly more than I got fingers and toes. This means that there is an incredible amount of demonic oppression, and demonic warfare that is taking place all around the world today. Everything from the lowest of the gutters with drunks and drugs all the way to the highest heights of kings and queens and politicians and everyone else in between and everything else in between. Now with this, we see that these supernatural beings here as we look, what we find is that with this Everyone up to this point is only referred to as son of their father. Right? We've got Noah was the son of Lamech, and Lamech was the son of Methuselah, and Methuselah was the son of Enoch, and Enoch was the son of Jared, and Jared was the son of of Mahalel, and Mahalel was the son of Canaan, and Canaan was the son of Enos, and Enos was the son of Seth, and they were calling upon the name of the Lord according to chapter 4, verse 26. And Seth was the son of Adam all the way down the line. You can follow that in Matthew and Luke and see this lineage that is always going on. But here we find daughters of men in chapter 6. It says that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives, which all they chose. So what men? Just lost men? Just unbelieving men? Well, the word here for men, it's... It's all-encompassing of mankind, humankind. Now, if this is the case, does this mean that it's only Cain's, or is this of all of them? If it's all of them, then here what we find is that the sons of God, a.k.a. these demonic beings, these fallen angels, are either one, taking on physical form, or two, possessing wicked men and performing and having cohabiting with these daughters of men and are producing a wicked seed. Now, you want to talk about perversion. To want to have sexual relations with supernatural beings, that's some deep, deep wickedness. Now, I want you to understand this today. There's folks who want such an experience. Much of the occult today is experimenting with much of these things. We find that there is... Folks out today who are seeking to open up as what they are referring to, science, leading scientists in fields of, of astronomy wanting to open and, and uh, physicists are wanting to open up, as they're calling them and referring to them, interdimensional portals to get to things and to let things in that we can't see and for us to go to things that we can't see. What does that sound like? A spiritual, invisible world that we cannot see with the naked eye but yet can be experienced. We, here's what we don't think about sometimes. The spiritual world can manipulate the physical and even can appear in the flesh. We're going to see this in Genesis as we continue to study. We'll get to the references here in a little bit. But even, even Hebrews 13 tells us this. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now there' are some who would hold that that word angels would only mean preachers or messengers nevertheless we find in Genesis itself that there are angels that have in human forms now with this as well you know what we uh, I'm looking up time here's, here's where we're going to stop right here here's what we're going to see if I keep going I'm going to be here for the four hours I, <laughs> yeah it's just not going to work but that's okay. Now, with this, guys, here's what we gotta understand. If this, if this view is right, what we're gonna find is a deep, deep wickedness. And we're gonna look a little bit more in depth because tonight we're just we're just flat out of time, and that's okay. But what we're gonna find is that the Old Testament is going to allude to these angels who left their place of where they were supposed to be. First Peter 3 talks about it, 2 Peter 2 talks about it, Jude talks about it. We'll get into those references in Uh, Not next week for Candlelight, but the week after, all right? So I want you to chew on this a little bit. Read read through some of these references and things, okay? Um, And and what we're going to do is this. We're going to look and see that if these are the sons of God, that there is some serious, wicked, perversion taking place. And to see that there is a demonic possession that is leaving their natural state. We're going to see this sort of craving, even, of the demonic world to want to put on flesh. You ever thought about this? Angels were made before man. But what was more beautiful? Man. God spoke, made the angels, made the sun, moon, stars, the billions times billions of galaxies that we can't even discover yet. I mean, it's wonderful. And he spoke a word and did it. But he took one of the smallest planets in this small solar system, in this small galaxy, out of billions times billions of galaxies and picked up the dust and made man. Angels didn't get that treatment. What we're going to find is that there's going to be some demonic, angelic beings, it seems, who want to put on flesh that they never got to put on and to go the opposite of their nature, of what they were meant to do. So what is the nature of what angels are meant to do? Much the same of what you and I are meant to do. That all of creation is meant to glorify God. And when man, or anything not man, goes contrary to what God has ordained, and ordered, and fashioned, and, and, and commanded, that it's rebellion, sinful, and is deserving of quick and wrathful vengeance and judgment. That judgment's going to come in the next few chapters as we see the flood come. But we're going to find here in this passage that clearly, whether you take view one or view two, there is some serious sin that God says enough is enough. But The wonderful truth of this is this. Though all of this sin is... Deserving of justice. God will bring justice. But He will ultimately bring justice by crushing His Son. So that sinners who do not deserve an ounce of mercy can receive infinite mercy. That's the beauty of the Gospel. And as we study a hard passage like this, and one that's full of judgment, full of sin, full of even questions even, something that we can be certain of, is that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the promise of God, the provision of God, and will one day bring us into the presence of God. That is the goal of this passage. That's the goal of every passage of this book, to bring us to Christ and to get us away from sin like this. All right? So I encourage you, read through this passage, study through a little bit of these references that you can see there in 1 Peter, 2 Peter, Jude, Look at those things in Job, and, and two Wednesdays, we're going to finish off this section, all right? So let's pray. Lord, we come to you. We want to thank you for your faithfulness, and Lord, Lord I wish I could have finished that. And Lord, I just want to explain it as best I know how, and I pray, God, that you would uh, just help folks be able to sift through any chaff, and Lord, just to get the meat, and Lord, that we would focus um, upon Christ and who he is and how Christ has come uh, to, to save us, to keep us from such sin and evil and wickedness. And Lord, while we see the world around us seems to be just falling apart and even falling further and further in darkness, help us, O oh Lord, to live uh, in the light of Christ and to share the light of Christ uh, as we go about our day and our life. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. Help us to chew and to meditate upon your scripture. And God, that we would see Christ in all things. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, y'all, the blessed night seniors. See you guys tomorrow for your Christmas meal. And uh, we won't see you for Sunday school, but we'll see you guys at 1030 this Sunday for our Christmas meal and ugly sweater day. All right. And so y'all come ready to eat and worship the Lord. We'll have a great day.